Um, actually, no, I'm in a very appreciative mood. I know it's because you're nervous. Every time I get up to speak, you're like, last time, Pastor, there was a hair incident, and my hair looks cut again, and so you're thinking the message is entitled Mad, and, and he's got a haircut. So I just want to clarify, I'm not mad at this haircut, and, and, the hair, and the message is not mad because I'm mad, okay? So just quell that, first of all. Uh, we're actually going to be talking about murder, adultery, and divorce, fun topic for the day. Thank you, Pastor Eric, for that one. You could have the Beatitudes and the attitudes you be having. I've done that one many times, but no, let's talk about a fun topic. So mad seemed appropriate. And then, of course, on Wednesday night, I appreciate some of you wearing black today, and we're still grieving. Um, My team, which I know some of them is not your team, but my team, the Los Angeles Dodgers, passed away from life to the other side and now we have to wait another 28 years to cheer again and so i have every right to actually be mad this morning all right but i will quell my madness and i will try to be glad because behind this message is some of the most exciting stuff ever And I can't say that, you know, I'm a pastor and I've studied this and I know it all. I wish the Bible was just kind of one of those things like, you know, you know, you've been a pastor, you know, you've been walking with the Lord since you were 14 and you've got it figured out and you kind of know that's just not how the word of God is. It's so exciting to know that when you spend time with God's word and you have the opportunity to kind of just dive into it and say, okay, Lord, what do you have for us? Man, it just, it, it just continues to bubble forth. And so for me, um, I will definitely be sharing at least one or two points today that I've never heard before, and hopefully you can hear some things that you have never heard before. Um, I, like Eric, wanted to thank everyone. That was my first trunk or treat, too, with you guys, and I wanted to thank Romy for explaining that a bicycle, even though it has no trunk, can still be in a very effective tool. So thank you, Romy, my parking lot neighbor out there. I also want to thank the young adults for showing up and doing such a wonderful job, especially um, Camp Nate and Sarah with the soccer camp. That was ridiculously fun. And if you guys were here to see that, um, I really appreciate uh, Don's full commitment to pirating the whole night for the kids. Uh, You know, staff people that have no choice, Jimmy, is one thing, but um, Don's full commitment to pirating all night long was just, it's insane. And it it really does, it started like all week long, and so the effort that he put in behind the scenes. Rich Rapoli's small group, I mean, come on, it's one thing to cook a burger, have somebody over and do whatever, but 500 burgers? Rich, that's that's impressive. Let's just be honest here, there's In-N-Out doesn't serve 500 burgers in a day and extremely good edible burgers by the way. most church burgers a little questionable you guys knock out some really good burgers uh, not that i got any but nate told me he ate like six of them so that, that i'm going on his thing um all the whole church eric said it's just a, it's a good event we do three four hundred people i'm like i've been doing church events for a minute that was no three four hundred we had three or four hundred like in the first hour i don't know how many went through but it was way past three or four hundred And so for you guys to reach out to your community and say, hey, we want to love on you guys. This is who we are. And we passed out those come to church, come to church. And I don't know if anyone's here today or not. It really doesn't matter. What matters is there's seeds out there now. And they got a chance to see the church love on them. So thank you, church, for for passing out free food and opening your parking lot up and loving on people. I really think that that says something about who we are. So on top of all this, I also want to just uh, tell you thank you for letting us, Jen and I, be a part of this um, as we continue to watch the staff grow and all the different things going, keep praying for us. Um, that rebranding process was an amazing thing, and now that that's kind of done, don't think, okay, you know, they're done and they're good to go. That was a huge thing, but we just kind of feel like that was the beginning of what we've been working for. I mean, obviously, we couldn't have done it without uh, Reveille and all that work that they've done, but I mean, we kind of hope now that it's the beginning of a whole new run for the church, and we're really excited about it, but we really do cover your prayers and continue to pray that God will continue to bless the church. Um, Let's go to the Lord in a time of prayer really quick, and then we'll get started with what I do seriously believe is not only the greatest sermon the Lord ever taught, but we're going to find out, like I said, early, 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 early on in his mission, uh, one of the earliest missions, greatest message he ever taught. Father God, we are so blessed this morning to come before you. We thank you for this amazing building that you've given to this church, that it's had an amazing run, and we thank you for that. But we do pray that it's the beginning of a new time, Ecclesiastes 3, that a new season for this church can begin we thank you for the 
diversity of our crowd, Father. We thank you that we can reach both the young and the old, and, and this can really be a place of community, that people that come here feel loved and feel that the Word of God is reaching out and touching them. Father, I pray that anyone that steps forth in this building finds it to be a place of authentic, genuine, true Christian love, and that we can reach out and meet them and love them just like you continue to reach out and meet people and love them some 2,000 years ago. I thank you for the worship that we've already had. I thank you for the worship that goes out every time we pray and we read the Word. I thank you for worship that happens when we tithe and do anything. But today, Father, we're going to spend some time with what can be some difficult topics. I mean, murder, adultery, and divorce are not something that we want to talk about every day. But the fact that you talked about it from the very beginning, that you broke down and had something to say from the very beginning, I pray that today we can hear that same truth and that it'll speak to us mightily today, Father. I look forward to sharing it. We do it all in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. Whenever you start something so monumental, you should always do a little background And so I wanted to take a little bit of a moment to kind of build some background here. So I'm going to put a couple of slides up here. So the cool thing about the Sermon on the Mount was Jesus is just coming out of chapter 4. And I don't know if you guys actually realize this. So the Sermon on the Mount, he's just coming out of um, being baptized and then coming out of his 40 days of temptation with with the devil. And then as he comes out of that trial of temptation, he's just now on his way to go visit John the Baptist in Galilee. And as he's on his way to go visit John the Baptist at Galilee, which is kind of in the northern part of, uh, of uh, Israel there, he's going to actually gather his first four guys. So, I mean, it's literally in the very beginning of his ministry. He doesn't even have a full posse yet. He's gathering his guys. He's, he's on the side of the lake. And in this picture right here, what you have is kind of the northernmost part of the lake. And at the northernmost part of the lake, you're going to see three monumental things. You're going to see the Mount of Beatitudes, which is where the actual message is going to take place. You're going to see the church of the multiplication, which is at the bottom of the hill left, and then the church of the primacy. Now, what's kind of cool about this is, although this is the kind of the beginning focal point of the ministry in Matthew 4, this is also a place where things are going to end. So uh, Matthew 4, 5 is going to start up there on the top of the mountain up there. He's actually going to start the Sermon on the Mount. It's going to start right up there on the top with that little crescendo, that little valley. And then in Matthew 14, when you talk about the feeding of the 5,000, that's actually going to take place later on down there at that church down there. That church actually has one of the oldest mosaics known on the floor, a relief of the feeding of the 5,000. That's actually going to take place down in that church on the floor of the lake. And then the church of Peter's primacy, that's where Peter was called by Jesus. And when Jesus dies on the cross and he leaves and decides that he can no longer follow Jesus, that's where he's going to return home. And Jesus is going to go meet him there and reinstate him back into the flock. So a lot of things are going to be happening with the Sermon on the Mount that kind of make it a monumental thing. Now, because of that, and because he's just kind of interesting, can you go to the next slide, Mark? Because of that and kind of a thing, um, they actually went and did a movie there called The Sermon on the Mount, which is kind of cool. So a lot of people said, oh, you can't talk to that many people uh, on the side of a hill. So what they did is they took a bunch of people there. They actually filmed the movie there. And so this is a shot from the movie clip. So what they did is they actually went to the actual bowl on the side of the hill. They put an actor on the side of the hill, and then they actually filmed the scene here and found out that the acoustics in this actual valley, between the lake and the valley, you can actually talk in normal voice, and over 5,000 people could actually hear the acoustics in this valley. So not only is this an actual place, it's a physical place, but this is an actual shot from the movie scene of kind of him speaking. Now, the only difference is here in the opening line, it says Jesus sat and spoke, And for the movie scene, he's standing. But I still thought it was kind of a a cool scene for a visual to kind of realize Jesus is just beginning his ministry. He's walking along the side of the lake. He picks up two guys. He picks up two more guys. He just starts talking in the town. He's literally giving his first kind of, you know, this is who I am. This is what it's all about. As he's going through, people are starting to gather. All of a sudden, you realize there's this huge swell. And by chapter 5, I mean, he's literally in the infancy of his ministry and then, boom, he realizes he needs to get up on this hill so that he can have access to speak to all these people. Mark, can you go to this next slide? And then this next slide is just, this is the actual side of the hill without the people on it. So this is actually looking right down from the side of the hill, from the actual, where the kind of the, they've made kind of a little a marker up there. So this actual hillside looking back down. So without the people and stuff on it, that's that Sea of Galilee area right there. So... Sometimes I think too often um, as pastors, when we talk about things from the Bible, we talk about it in such a way like it's, it's historical and it's narrative, but we forget the fact that it's factual and it's architectural. The, um, the, everything we have with historical things, archaeology as we know it, is a study of everything that's in the Bible. And everything we have about God's word has been studied. People go there and do that. There's other faiths that exist that have no archaeological proof. 
where everything we talk about actually has a place that goes with it. And so something like this, as monumental as this is, I just thought that this was kind of cool to kind of take you there really quick and say, you know, we're not just talking about something. We're not just, this is not some cool story from the Bible. I mean, this is the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. This is the first giant pet pock that he's about to give from the very beginning. And this is an actual place that it actually took place with actual people. And you can actually go there and see that. I get excited about silly stuff like that. I don't know why. My wife loves pictures too, so I do that. And I want you to know one thing. You, some pastors like myself like to go a little over an hour, and Eric says, you know, try to keep it 20, 30 minutes. I would n- I've never done a 20 or 30 minute message in my life, and so I'm never going to do one. I apologize in advance. <laughs> this, this message probably took two to three days. Two to three days, okay? Five days, yeah. It, it, anytime there's speculation in the Bible, I always go at the low side. Two to three to four to five days. This thing took days. <laughs> he fed, the reason why they said he fed 5,000 is because they only counted men. The speculation goes anywhere from 10 to 20,000. So for speculation, it took days, right? It starts in chapter 5. It doesn't end until chapter 8. There was no chapters in the Bible. The scribes put chapters and Bible verses in there so they could check their work. It was a long, drawn-out, thorough sermon the most proficient message ever given and yet it's literally at the very beginning of his ministry i want you to understand that from the very beginning of who jesus christ was and is he knew what he came to talk about that's the most important thing about the most important sermon that was ever given he knew from the very beginning what he needed to say and he had it all down and because of that a lot of things are going to happen and one of the things that's going to happen is the people in the audience are going to have two responses One, based on how your heart is, you're going to receive it and be extremely glad. You're going to hear something from him that you've never heard before. You're going to hear a new perspective that's going to change your mind about who you thought he was and his understanding of the word. Or you're going to become mad because he's going to say some things that are going to change everything that's currently being taught. And so that's why I say mad, because there's a lot of different things in here that will make people mad. Now, obviously, this whole thing is predicated on one thing. It all kind of hinges on one key passage. And so because we were basically reading from the um, Sermon on the Mount, we have to go there. Let's go to Matthew. Uh, Mark, you can put this up. This is going to be slide uh, three or four, the Matthew 5, 17, 18. This is the key passage. On this passage, everything that we're going to study is ful- fulfilled in this one passage. So I'll read from this, and hopefully I have the same translation. No, not that one. The one that says, uh, do not think I came to abolish the law. I got, my, got ahead of myself already. That one's one, one too far advanced. Is there, is there one back? Nope, you don't have that one. Okay, let's just read from Matthew five seventeen and 18. It's in the program. Okay. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So he's not coming to abolish the law, which is the Old Testament, Moses, everything that's been written before, or the prophets who have spoken that information. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So what Jesus is about to say and what Jesus is about to do is the fulfillment of everything that has been given. So I like to think of it as this. The Old Testament is kind of like book A, okay? The Old Testament is the precursor to information. The prophets, Moses, Abraham, all their general information is one theory, one thought of information. That's what they have. And Jesus is saying, I'm now about to give you book B, the New Testament, and I'm about to give it to you in technicolor. It's kind of like you've been living with just black. And now I'm about to give you white, Green, yellow, red, orange, I'm about to give you everything. I'm about to give you everything that's behind the veil. Not that this information is not correct or not good. It's all good. And every piece of this information, T and I, will be fulfilled. But I'm about to give you the intent behind the information. And that's so important because right now a lot of them kind of think that they understand things. They kind of know things. And in their general knowledge of things... They are truly leading people astray. And that's really important for us because a lot of people right now still, in the way they think about faith, 
they understand things in the law of things, in the sense of things, without truly understanding the intent of things, which Jesus is saying, this is what's so revolutionary about it. The kingdom is now going to be for a group of people who mourn. What? The kingdom is now going to be for a group of people who mourn. Blessed is now going to be a group of people who weep and cry and have not. It's going to be a new kingdom. It's a new revolutionary thought. And the group, as they stand around, is absolutely floored. What is Jesus talking about? I thought the blessed people were the people that were polished and perfect and perfected and doing all the things that they were told to be doing. And now all of a sudden he's talking about this whole new group of people and he's saying, nope, if you're sick and you have nothing, come to me. If you're hungry and you're thirsty, come to me. And those of you that hunger and thirst for righteousness, come to me. And for my name's sake, I'm about to fill you. And not only am I about to fill you, I'm about to bless you and call you into a new kingdom that will be called mine. This is, this is information for them that's mind-blowing. And that's why when he gets to verse 18, it's kind of confusing because he's going to summarize again. Whenever there's a therefore in the Bible, you should always ask, what's it there for? Okay? It's always going to be summarizing the information before. So he's saying, therefore, with that in mind, all those beatitudes, all those blessings, everything that I've talked about prior to this, and in light of that new information that I've come to fulfill things, not remove things, not abolish things, but I'm the fulfillment of everything that you've learned in the Old Testament. With that in mind, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Man, can you feel the scowls just absolutely turn into laser beams when he says that? Are you kidding me? What is he talking about sets aside the least of the commandments? What he's saying is, at some point when you decide what you want to teach and how you want to teach, and that's what you decide to teach, and then you set aside the other things which you, just, you determine, I don't, these are not for me. He's saying there's no setting aside any of these. It's the fullness of these things is that's who I am. If you want to be a follower of Christ, then you follow me in the fullness of who I am. And to that degree, I'm about to reveal what the fullness of following me is. Right? In particular, he's getting ready to talk on three topics, so he's going to reveal what it means to fully follow him. But he's also going to be talking about the fullness of the intent of the law. And this is really going to make him mad, because then when he talks about, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, he's basically calling out the Pharisees and saying, you know what, Pharisees? You currently think you have everything dialed in. You currently think your righteousness is sufficient. But you know what? Based on what I'm teaching right now, based on this new revelation that I'm about to share with everyone who's listening... Your righteousness is not sufficient. And there's people here who have no righteousness, have nothing right, and they're coming to me hungry, broken, and poor, and their righteousness is sufficient, according to me. And you can just feel the crowd kind of going, what is going on here? All of a sudden, the poor and the humble and the, and the meek and the broken are being elevated up, and the righteous and the, and the, and the pharisaical and these godly people are being put down, and, and, and the, the crowd is like, what is exactly is he saying here? And Jesus is saying, guys, this is the way that it is. I'm basically telling you this. You've been experts in telling people what to do, not in doing it. And how many of us today have experienced that firsthand? People that are just way too proficient in head knowledge, but absolutely zero when it comes to heart knowledge. I mean, they're all about, you know, this is how you're supposed to do, and this is what you're supposed to do. And this is what you do, and then you just turn around, and they're not doing any of that. Jesus says, that's, that is not going to work for me, guys. I don't know how long it's been working for you, but just for the record, from this point on, that will never work again. Okay? It's not about telling people what to do. The Sermon on, well, the, sermon on the Mount makes perfectly clear, you can never earn my favor and you never could earn my favor by doing 613 different things. That's not, that was never going to be a way to earn my favor. Instead, you've been focusing on externals. I'm here to now realize something and realize one thing only. The spotlight will now be shed on internals. 
You look on the outside. I am here to focus on the inside. And so as he transitions, he's now going to go into this initial teaching. And this initial teaching is just going to be mind-blowing for them because who doesn't think at that time, 2,000 years ago, or even today, when it comes to something as simple as murder, that you wouldn't have a generalized understanding or at least a basic knowledge of what he's talking about. But he sits right down and he goes straight into it and he starts off with this in verse 21. He says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So just as an initial comment, you have heard that it was said to people long ago is a clarification. I am not taking away anything from book A, from the Old Testament. I want you to understand that my respect for the Old Testament is such that I have full knowledge and comprehension of the Old Testament. I'm not just some new teacher appearing on the scene, right? Because he's new. He's a new teacher. He's, just a, he's literally just appearing on the scene. But he's telling him, I know. How, is he, how does he know? Because he's God's son. I know what the Old Testament says, and I respect it. So I'm telling you that I know what it says, and I respect it. But I want to tell you something. But I tell you this. So this is what you've heard. But I tell you, so we call this the antithesis. This is literally going to be the opposite teaching. He's now going to go through a series of teachings called the opposites. This is mind-blowing for them. You, you think this, but I'm going to teach you something that's completely polar opposite to your belief. I tell you that anyone who is angry, angry? Are you serious? Just angry? That's, that's as big as it gets for you? angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment now first of all when it comes to murder i just want to clarify something the word murder red red sock is how you say it in hebrew their word specifically speaks of premeditated or the deliberate act of taking a life so it's a premeditated or a deliberate act it never ever ever in the bible talks about protecting your home accidental death or defending your country in time of war. Okay? So one of the cool things about doing a, a, a word study on that is that you see the clarity of murder. Because of that, when he talks about murder and the intent of murder, what he's saying is the cause and effect situation is now going to be exposed. The cause and effect of everything will now be exposed. So a verse that the New Testament eventually will write like something like teaches us to be angry and not sin. That verse is going to be coming up later on in Ephesians. He's now going to expose how that actually works. How could you be angry and not sin? Because when you have anger for someone, what you're saying is, I no longer love. You no longer love. Well, love is who God is all about. And when you no longer love, your relationship with God is broken. And your relationship with that individual is broken. And so he's now identifying the cause and the effect. You see, murder might be the ultimate effect of what happens with that broken relationship. But the cause, root, is anger. Something has to trigger that initial effect that ripples all the way down to how it actually plays out. And I'm telling you this. From the general information that you understand about the Old Testament, I am now giving you the new information that reveals behind the scenes. It's called intent. And if you don't understand how I understand things, we're going to have a problem here. Because you say anger is no big deal. But I tell you, if you have anger in your heart, it's the same as murder. And they're like, how, how can that even possibly be on the same par as murder? For him it is. He says, and you say again... Anyone who says to his brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. Okay, angry was, you were pushing it with just angry. And now you're basically saying if I call someone an airhead, that's just like name calling 101. I, do we used to call blonde? I mean, the, the name, and that's like just, it's like name. I mean, that's just basic. But in Israel, name calling 2,000 years ago was an offense. And although Raqqa is the lowest level of a name calling, it still shows something about how your relationship with that individual is broken. And now you're taking something from that person, um, a respect that God had for them, a way that he sees them, and you're now calling them empty-headed. 
And so in that broken relationship, you're now telling them in front of other people, you, you're taking how God sees them and you're saying, no, they're empty headed. And he's saying that's the same as murder. You're taking from someone something that God says they're not. And I say to you, you're on the same par as a murderer. Oh, man, you, you could just feel this. I mean, there, there's scorns. There's really like, God, what is, what is going on here? And then he just, I'll tell you what, anyone who even says, you fool, this word here would be the same root word for moron. And this is a level three, in, in level three. It literally it shows disdain for the person. This would be considered a hate crime 2,000 years ago. Hate crime. It was punishable in the court depending on how the individual took it and depending on the group of people that heard it by cutting out of your tongue, stoning, strangling. That's you who said that to them. And he's saying all three of these levels are equal to murder because they are the seed that is planted that leads to the eventual effect of wanting to take someone's life. And right now, the people are just, they're trying to process which problem they actually have or what situation they're dealing with. And they're still just shaking their heads and they're just like, this is just too much. And then he says, and he looks him right now and he goes, you know what? And you are guilty right now of murder. And they're like, what is he talking about? And he says, because you have enough hate in your heart right now to kill me. And that's the same as murder. I mean, revolutionary was not the words for Jesus. I mean, everything that he's doing. I mean, this is the very beginning. He doesn't even have the fullness of his crew. He, he's just started walking alongside of a lake. It's really rather remote where he's at. I mean, it's so early on, it's, it's almost unfathomable to think that there's any kind of influence that's even worth talking about here. And yet he's laying it down from the very beginning to the people that are there. This is about to change, guys. Everything that you know is about to change. So you need to listen, and you need to listen now, because from the very beginning, I'm, I'm going to tell you what my father has told me, and I understand it perfectly clear. So listen and listen well. And praise God, it was written down perfectly clear so that we could write it down and share it again. Right? Because he says, if you hate, if you call someone a name and you have anger, if you have disdain for someone, you have the seed that is equal to the same effect of murder. And as far as God is concerned, there's no difference. And I know today people are like, you know, well, who can we invite to church and who can we invite to church and what about this person? You know what? We couldn't invite, we couldn't invite Saul of Tarsus to church. None of you would have invited Saul if he was a friend of yours 2,000 years ago. He was the most prolific murderer. So Charles Manson, he's a prolific murderer. I don't think any of you want to be friends with him. That's Saul of Tarsus. He was the most prolific murderer of the time. He was the most notorious at the time. His reputation was so fierce that even in his incapacitated state on the road to Damascus, Christians did not want to go talk to him. That guy became who? He writes 14 of the New Testament books. Because that's the kind of God we serve. That a murderer, a name caller, a person who has disdain for Christians can have a heart of stone turned into a heart of flesh. Anyone and everyone is welcome at this place. And he wanted them to know, it doesn't matter who's in the crowd. It doesn't matter how you're hearing this message. 2,000 years ago, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It matters who he is and what he can do. But he wants you to know your heart and your intent is everything with him. And he sees it. He can fix it, but he sees it. Another therefore in 23, what's it there for? He's not summarizing what was there for in 19. Right, Because 19 was summarizing the Beatitudes and what was in 17. So he's summarizing just between what's in 21 and 20. Uh, what do you got? 18, 19, and 21. So he's saying, therefore, if you're offering a gift at the altar 
and remember that your brother or your sister has something against you because you've caused one of these offenses, anger, name-calling, or a hate crime. If you have one of these offenses, leave your gift at the altar and then go and be reconciled. Then come and offer your gift. Now, that slide. Here's the one slide I got. Okay. First thing you hear when you say leave your gift, you're like, okay, that just, it's a simple relationship issue. It's no big deal. You just leave your gift and you go reconcile. Do you realize where he's at? I know you don't because that's why I put the slide up. He's in Galilee. Remember, he's just starting his ministry. He's nowhere. You turn right at nowhere and you go 68 miles north at the top of the lake on the side of a mountain and start talking. That's where he's at. He's as far away from the temple as you could possibly be. He's way up there at the top of the Sea of Galilee. He's at the very top of the corner at Capernaum. He's at the very north corner. And he's saying, hey, before you go all the way back to Jerusalem here and give your gift, that's five days walking. Before you do that, go. Go back and go reconcile. What are you going to do for five days? I know what I would do. It's a long walk. I'm going to be thinking about how I let that relationship get out of control. Right? Those five days are going to be my self-medication with the Lord to reconcile that which is wrong. Because there's no cell phones back then. We have a lot of liberties right now to reconcile broken relationships. We have a lot of ways that we can reconcile things that are wrong. But he knew back then, during that five days, when you were at the altar, it was a process just to get in the temple and get to the point to get to the altar, by the way. That's a whole other thing they're not talking about. We don't understand that. You don't just walk in, go to the altar, and boom, do your thing. That's a whole other process, another sermon. But even if you got to that, you left that behind. As you're walking back, you think about, how did I go from being friends with that person to wanting to have them killed or having to stay into my heart? And he says, you know what? As you're walking, this is what I want you to consider. I don't want you to just go back and reconcile. I want you to go back and make them your friend. What? This is bad enough. You said leave your gift at the altar and then walk 68 miles. Now I have to go back. Because yes, it's more than that for us. To be a follower of Christ was never just get on board and whenever you're in trouble, God help me get out of the situation and then boom. To be a follower of Christ meant far greater is what's called from us. I want you to reconcile broken relationships. I want you to show them that you're more than in Christ. Because relationships mean a lot to Christ. And if you have a broken relationship and you're willing to just say, well, I'm, I'm just going to accept that broken relationship, by, then your relationship with God is going to be broken because that's not what he wants from us. Now, if you try to reconcile with someone and they don't want to reconcile with you, for the record, that's not on you. Am I clear? I go to you and I say, Sherry, I'm sorry that I said that to you. That was inappropriate. If Sherry decides she does not want to forgive me, that's, that's not on me anymore. And by the way, me and Sherry have nothing, so it's all good, okay? <laughs> but the point of it is, I go to the sister or the brother and I say, you know what, it's with me. And an apology is not, Sherry, I just wanted to come to you and let you know, I, even though what you did was wrong and everything... An apology is not inciting more anger in the other person, by the way. Let's just clarify that. A lot of you have turned apologies into another way to just re-anger the person for what they already did. That's not an apology. For the record, that's not an apology, okay? You humble yourself. You're at the altar, and the Lord says, you know what? You have a broken relationship with X, Y, or Z. You've done something. Okay, what do I need to do? Okay, I want to take my responsibility for that. I just want to say, Sherry, for my responsibility for what I said to you, I just want to come to you and say I'm sorry for what I, my role is in that. And I would really appreciate it if you would reconcile me and we could be friends again or we could have that relationship. At that point, I just leave that with her and I leave that and I'm done with that. I put that be, before her and the Lord and I'm done with that. Now, I can go back to the altar and I can have my moment with the Lord. It's now on her, right? It's now on her to realize that I've made peace with that. So that's what the Lord's calling us for. He's saying, hey, look, my job is I've been wrong. Whoever I go to the person that that I try to reconcile the relationship, because if I don't, we're going to read something else is going to happen. What else happens if I don't settle the matter quickly with my adversary who has taken me to court and do it while we're still together on the way? Your adversary may what take me to the judge 
and the judge may hand me over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison, and truly I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. If I don't reconcile quickly with my sister or with my brother, I now have to realize my sister or my brother might take me before a man or a woman judge. And as a believer, I don't ever want to be in a position to put myself, in my case, in front of a man or a woman to be judged because I'm already being judged in front of the Lord. And once he makes that known to me that I'm wrong, I want to reconcile that with her in front of the Lord. Now, if she doesn't want to reconcile that with me, that's okay. She has to reconcile that with the Lord, but I can then go back to the altar and make my peace with the Lord. Right? Because if we both don't do it right, guess what? The Bible says if we both don't get it right and we stand in front of a man, we both lose. To go to court, to stand before a judge, the Bible says you both lose. Nobody wins in court. We are to settle before we go to court quickly. We are not to let the sun go down on our anger. Any of us. We are to settle. And not to settle, we are to turn our adversaries into friends. That is what the Bible calls us to do. It's not what the world is called to do. Doesn't that make you mad? It does. It'd be so much easier if you could just pick and choose. Like, you know, the people that were nice to you, you could be friends with, and then people that are not nice, you could be... It's not how it works. He never called us to that life. I'm so sorry if someone sold you a faith that that's what that... It, that's not our faith. He never sold us that faith. He sold us a faith where they spit in his faith, drove thorns in his head, and as they stood there mocking him, he said what? Damn, Lord, because they deserve it. Right? That makes me mad, right? Because he could have done that. He could have called down 10,000 to 10,000 and just been like, whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. You know, like what just what brief moment wouldn't that be like so sweet in the bible they're just like you know the, what in the garden he's praying and all of a sudden they all fall down like dominoes at one scene like wouldn't it be great if they would never got back up like they'd be like oh wow he but you know i i assume they all got back up it's like you get little snippets of it but this is not him we're not called to just be like oh you're going to court with jimmy that's unfortunate now you got to say hey you guys can't go to court you need to reconcile the bible says reconcile quickly Otherwise, if you go to court, it says you will be liable for the last penny. The word penny in the Bible is furthing. The word furthing in the Bible is the same as the widow's might, which means half penny. Which means if you go to court, not only do you both lose, but you will be liable for everything that worldly judge puts on you to the last penny. Because that's not who you're supposed to be standing in front of. We're to be liable to the judges. But we're already liable to this one. And he already says reconcile before you go there. So reconcile. Do whatever you can to reconcile. Without accusing the other person, that's not apologizing. Humble yourself, go to the person, and reconcile. God does not want gifts from hearts that are astray. He doesn't want your gift anyways. Just leave it there. Let someone else give it. Because your heart's not ready to give anyways. Get it right and come back. Harboring animosity... When you were a kid, it sounds like no big deal. But you know what? The story of Cain and Abel destroys that for all of us. Cain and Abel, boy, when I was in youth ministry, I was in youth ministry for 25, 20, a lot of, a lot of years. Parents would always come in to me, you know, it's TV that's ruining our kids. It's the music that my kid's listening to. That's what's ruining it. It's the rap music. It's, a, it's videos. It's rap music. It's the TV. There's a lot of things that are ruining your kids' music, right? Okay, let's just quickly go to the Bible. How about Genesis 4.8? Cain and Abel, two brothers, no rap music, no TV, no headphones, no nothing. Just two brothers hanging out in an agrarian society, nothing but corn growing and farming, basic stuff. And they both bring their stuff to the altar. One brings a meat offering, one brings a vegetarian plate. And something happens there, and one brother says, Oh, I see that the Lord kind of likes your plate a little better than mine, and uh, I don't like that. I don't like that turns into, uh, i got a problem with you, and I'm going to have to do something about that. Hey, uh, brother, why don't you, uh, whew, you meet me out here in this field? I'll talk to you. And next thing you know, 
Oh, gun control. We need gun control. We need machete control. Right now what we need is van control, I guess. We need to go to Home Depot and stop running vans. People are going to be killing people with stuff from now. You guys can't stop what people... Rock. We need rock control. Because back then, Moses found a rock, you know. Cain found a rock. So we need rock control. <laughs> you, need, you need heart control. Do you understand what you need control of? The Bible tells us what we need control of. We need control of people. And he's saying it's heart control. Cain killed Abel because his heart was bad, because he let anger grow. And if you let anger grow in your life, if you let words, hostility towards someone, name-calling towards someone, hate for someone, uh, rage for someone grow, you put the same seed in your heart that Cain had for Abel. Without any music, without any TV, without any other influence, it's already there right now. It's in all of our DNA. That's called sin. And it was born into all of our nature. So Jesus says, you know what, guys? Here's the situation. Take care of these situations quickly. I, I grieve broken relationships. I want you to make them friends. I don't want you to just reconcile. I want you to do whatever it takes as quickly as possible. And when you do that, you will find out something. You can avoid situations that hurt you and hurt other people. Because a farthing may not seem much, but in biblical times, if you owed a certain amount of money and you couldn't pay it, they put you in prison. You stayed in prison until the debt was paid. And unless someone came in and paid your debt, you literally stayed in prison until, your debt, until you died. And the point he's saying there is cause and effect. I know the cause of everything, and I know the effect. And that's why when I tell you about adultery right now, it's not going to make any more sense than murder did. But if it does, it's because you're listening. Because you have heard it said that you should not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery within her heart. That just makes no sense whatsoever once again. I mean, you know, this whole thing with murder, you know, I understand that I'm mad, but now you're saying if I have a anger in my heart, and a, that's the same thing. But what is this thing with, with lustful look? Well, the idea of a lustful look is pretty simple. In life, you have to look. In life, you have to use your eyes. But the point he's saying is at the point you look at something and you say, what was that? And you're going down the street, you're walking down the road, and you say, what was that? And your mind says, you know what, whatever that was, you don't need to look at it again. Right? At the second look, when you say, but I want to, right? Those of us who walk with the Lord have the Spirit of God living us, and the Spirit of God is telling us, do not look. Whether you're a man or whether you're a woman, it doesn't matter. If you're a human being, it happens. And at the point you make that look, the word literally reads, keep on looking. When you turn that second look and make that intent to say, you know what, heart, what do you want? Let's satisfy your need. And the heart says, okay, we'll take a second look. You, by taking that second look, take a step from this is life, and, and in life you're going to have troubles and tribulations and challenges. But you take that from that to you say, you know what, you're now taking something from that person and looking at them. You are looking at them in a way that God did not intend you to look at that person. And I'm calling you out now and saying, you know what, just like you had information A in the beginning with the Old Testament, I'm telling you New Testament information, guys, that lustful look is the exact same law as the Tenth Commandment, which is coveting, and you are, you are committing adultery with that woman in your heart, in your eyes, or man, in your heart and in your eyes. The cause is a lustful look. The effect of that is adultery. It doesn't just happen. You don't just wake up one morning and go, what did I do last night? I can't believe that that happened. Long before that ever happened, the Lord says, the tiny seeds were sown. You allowed yourself to look. Maybe a website. Maybe a, your phone. And because he knows there's so many different intense and opportunities out there he says hey look if your right eye causes you to stumble gouge it out and throw it away for it'd be better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell small problem 
one concern. If I gouge out my right eye, I still have my left eye. Hey, woohoo! I'm just as. What am I gonna? Okay, now I've gouged out both my eyes. Someone says, "Hey, there goes such and such." Would I have to rip my ears off now? You, you see the point here? I mean, the, it's called verbal hyperbole. He's saying the idea of the right eye or the right hand. Of, then he goes on to say, "If your right hand causes you some," these were dominant features in the society. He's saying what the dominant thing, whatever the thing was that was causing you to stumble, he's making a suggestion saying whatever this thing is that's causing you, they don't have iPads, they don't have phones, they don't have computers. He's making an indication, the dominant thing in society. If that was your dominant thing, it would be better for you to get rid of the dominant thing than for you to stumble. But clearly a man with no eyes can still hear that a beautiful woman's walking by and still in his heart, right? You have no eyes. You think blind people don't lust? You think pornography doesn't work for blind people? I mean, you just you have to process this. Sometimes we're not thinking clearly. It's not that, because there was actually a whole society of people that tried to maim themselves and do all these mutilizations. That's not, that's not how it works. You can't get rid of enough parts to stop yourself from still sinning. Okay? You're still going to commit these kinds of things because that's your sin nature. He's saying get back to the heart. Make the heart pure. Make the heart clean. Internal makes the external. Otherwise, you can be polished as all out here, but if the inside is dirty, it's not going to work. He allows people to understand. Hyperbole means the way this works is pretty simple. Think about King David. Think about how adultery works. A king who had everything, literally. All the women, all the money, all the stuff a guy could ever want. But in the month where kings were supposed to be at war... Guess where he was? At home, chilling in the palace. Well, the palace, it turns out, is bigger than most of the surrounding area. So what do you do when you're chilling in the palace and you don't have air conditioning and it's a warm summer night? Get to the roof, hang out, see what's up. And he's up chilling on the roof. And when you're taller than everyone else and you're chilling on the roof and you're looking and you're hanging out, you know it doesn't take too long. He sees something he shouldn't see. And he knows right then and there. Do I look? Or do I do what kings do and go to battle? He looks. He lingers. And from the look and the linger, a whole plan is born. He sends for her. Adultery is committed. It's not enough. He then has to send her husband to the front of the battle. And a good man passes because someone can't control where they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to be doing. Is David a bad man? Does the Bible just write David off and say, you know what, if you commit adultery, God's done with you. And he'll have nothing to do with adulterers. You know what, adulterers are welcome in God's house. Because David is a man after God's own heart. He reconciled him. Did he pay a price? Oh, he paid a serious price. Him and Bathsheba lost a child. But you know what? God reconciles adulterers just like he reconciles murderers. And adulterers are welcome in the house of God because this is the only place a heart of stone can be made flesh. But you need to understand something. That second look is not free. And you can look and no one may know, but the Lord knows. Be content in all things. Know that the Lord has set aside your husband or your wife for you. And you will find out something when we get to marriage. And I'm going to tell you in a second some very exciting fact. Adultery destroys not only marriage, which is precious to God, but it goes against his original design of two becoming one flesh. It destroys everything, including family and friends and those around. Adultery has much more cost than just the small amount of time that seems it occupies. Jesus knew these things. And he was warning people to tell them, I know things so that you could avoid these things, so don't fall into these things. So when he met the woman at the well, he wasn't blown away by a woman in adultery. When he met a woman who was in the act of adultery, he wasn't blown away by a woman who was in the act of adultery. Jesus showed compassion. When everyone else turned their back, Jesus showed compassion. We too should show compassion. It only makes sense after Jesus teaches on murder, which is the sixth commandment, 
and then he teaches on adultery, which is the seventh commandment. Why didn't he then go to the eighth commandment, which was stealing? I mean, it seems like he was kind of on a natural roll here. But instead, he transitions to what makes absolute sense, which from murder and adultery, which was divorce. This is the beautiful thing about Jesus. From the very beginning, he was always sensitive to the crowd. He was always sensitive to the needs of the people. And so seeing that the group of people that he was talking to was listening to this very matter of the issue that he was talking about, he rolls right into the very natural topic. And in verse 31 and 32, he just closes with this. He says, It has been said, Anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. So once again, the it has been said is very similar to the you have heard it said. I understand what, what has been said. Um, have you guys ever heard of the school of thought, the, the, the phrase, the school of thought on that is? So the idea of it has been said and the divorce certificate comes from the idea of the school of thought. And the school of thought actually exists back then that there's two schools of thought in Israel. Now, these are fun words to say. Um, Halil is the liberal school of thought in Israel. The Halil school of thought was if your wife displeases you in any way, divorce. Bad cooking, smells bad, walks bad, looks bad. I mean, literally, it was, it was so liberal that the idea of divorce was for the Halil school, get that certificate going and move on. The conservative school, the Shammai school, was only in unfaithfulness. Two schools of thought, and with those two schools of thought, the, the Jews kind of figured they had it all figured out. So with that in mind, as Jesus says, it has been said, anyone who divorces. So they kind of feel like they kind of have an understanding. But when he breaks it down and says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What he's saying is, if you don't do this right, if one of your two schools of thinking is wrong, then you marrying someone who's not actually divorced makes you an adulterer. So you might want to listen clearly as I definitively tell you what information A of the Old Testament is saying. Let me give you the New Testament. Let me give you the good news about what the intent is behind this. The word... Pornea is an interesting word here when it talks about immorality and unfaithfulness. It really speaks of something. It speaks about unfaithfulness not being a singular act, but the act of continual, continual doing. It actually speaks of harlotry, okay? Harlotry. Now, this is interesting because in my 12 years of paid ministry as a staff pastor, and 27 years of total ministry and many years of counseling, uh, some of this generalized information seems like it kind of slipped through the cracks for me. Um, so the idea would be that if two people wanted to get a divorce, but the wife of a believer or the husband of a believer had an adulterous relationship, reconciled, apologized for that, and then wanted to come back to the individual, the individual then should instantly take that person back, should want to take that person back. A reconciled apologetic person, not in the act of, continually act of, should be reconciled. The adulterous act of continually staying in that act, the way this kind of reads, speaks of someone's heart. And so what Jesus was saying was someone whose heart is not wanting to be forgiven, someone whose heart is hardened to what the word is actually saying and wants to maintain that lifestyle is showing who they really are. And then, and only then, could that divorce decree then be issued? Now, that may or may not change your situation, but it's something to make consideration of. The idea of con continually con committing something is much different than someone who makes a mistake and is repentant for that. And that started to make me mad again because the reality is when it comes to divorce, I don't know about you, but most people tell me when, when you get married, 50%, I mean, raise your 50% of people get divorced. You ever heard that? And then 50% of Christians get divorced. That just it seems to be this common lingo that's going around with that. So I spent the last two weeks getting ready for the message, and so I was studying that, and I was studying that, and I was studying that, and I was like, where is that 50% number? Um, it doesn't exist. It never existed. So I found this guy who, who actually wrote this number, and, and his name is Scott Stanley, and this is what he said about the 50% number. He's from the University of Denver. He says... 
the divorce number was actually derived by a crazy complicated system. The 50% number comes from a detailed analysis of various population demographics, including ages, lifespan projections, and things of that nature, which represents a sophisticated projection of calculated risks, much like a projected lifespan for babies born today. Which basically means they're guessing. At some point in time, a bunch of people got together and looked at kind of marriages and what was going on in the world and said, prognosticated out a number and said, okay, it looks like people are going to get divorced at about this rate. So I said, were there any factual numbers on divorce? And there actually was Barna, which is kind of a recognized industry. One did a study in 2007 and 2008 and found out that the actual divorce rate for the United States was 33%. That's not 50. And then in 2014, Harvard, pretty good school, they did a study and found out it's, uh, it's about 40%. The highest it's ever been is 40%, highest it makes me mad, really, really, really mad, really super mad that that's not the case. Because on, on top of that, they found out that 83% of people who are actually married are really happy. Well, nobody's saying that. And on top of the 83% of people that are actually married, do you realize that Christians, uh, people that claim to be Christians, only 15% of those are actually getting divorced? How come nobody's saying that? Because if 30% of the population is divorced, we're actually half of that. And then of the 15% that actually said they were Christians that were getting divorced, they asked them, so you go to church and you read your Bible? 7.5% of them said once a week, we do. The other 7.5% just said no. So realistically, 7.5% of the people that get divorced, that go to church once a week, are the actual people. We have a right to speak to the people that are getting divorced and tell them that God's word says something about marriage that can keep your marriage healthy and happy and wholesome. We are not getting divorced like everyone else. We are not doing everything like everyone else. And they're there. I don't know why people are not reading them. These are stats that are available for anyone to go read. Not only does it say that, but it actually goes on to say the reality is they live healthier lives. They live happier lives. They record better sexual lives and they live longer. Why, why aren't they saying that? Why, why, why is the world not telling us that? You know why? Because they want people to live together because that's easier for them to do. Because that's against what God's word says. So forget what God's word says. Let's just go with what the stats say. The stats say 50% of people get married and 50% of Christians. You guys have nothing to say anyways. How dare you speak? You're no different than anyone else. How dare them tell us what we are? Because the stats say we're not doing that. And they say 85% of people who are married are happy and living longer and enjoying better lives because divorce goes against God's code. Divorce goes against God's relationship. It goes against family. He loves family. He doesn't want you to fight against marriage. He wants you to fight for marriage. When you take a vow, till death do you part. If you're still alive and you come to me for counseling, I want you to know I'm going to fight for your marriage. I'm sorry if your husband has cheated. I'm sorry if your wife has cheated. But we should be fighting for our marriages. They're valuable. They're sacred. No one forces you to get married. Think about that before you get married. No one's forcing you to get married. If you want to get married and you stand in front of God, family, and friends and say, till death do his part, then figure out a way to honor that. Just remember when the good times were. Remember the reason why you came together. Remember what it is that you love about each other. And then forgive each other. You've forgotten how to forgive. You've forgotten what it's all about. And so it's easier to divorce. It's, it's easier to just, just move on. We're a commodity. Our marriages are no different than McDonald's cups. We just throw them away when we're done with them. That's not what Christ came to speak about when he brought this revolutionary message 2,000 years ago. He says, you guys, murder, adultery, divorce, they're not just new problems. They're not just something that just came on the scene. We've been dealing with it for 2,000 years. And you, as a follower of Christ, what they call the way, you as a follower of the way, you have something to say. You have a different way of understanding that will change people's perspective. Jesus taught from the very beginning as a person of authority. That's not how the people heard the scribes talking. From the very beginning, from this first message, he taught like he knew what he was talking about. In chapter 5 of Matthew, after just getting to the lake and saying, knock your speaker off, go crazy, Jeff. Southern Baptist church. 
true blue. Knock my speaker off. Can't believe I made it that far without knocking a speaker off. Throw something. I told you I was going to get mad. Look, they heard this 2,000 years ago, and they had every right to get upset, and you have this 2,000 years later, you have the same right to either get upset or be encouraged. The reality is, you know, when we lose our salt, we're not really good for much anyway. So if your salt preserves something, preserve your marriage today. Preserve a relationship today. If you're light, find some darkness and shine into it. You know, when you were a kid, I don't know if you used to do this, but, you know, I surf fish a lot down here at 74th Street. And on the nights when there's no moon, the beach can be a very dark place. And my wife's like, aren't you freaked out when you're fishing down there at night? And I'm like, you know what? I have my headlamp. And sometimes I got to admit, I have to just turn my lamp on just to remind myself what light looks like. The beach, complete black, pitch black at night, it can be pretty ominous, you know, it can be pretty lonely and pretty overwhelming. But just one little headlamp, one little light. I feel like I'm good. You know, I just look around. I make sure there's nothing going on out there. And I just I love it. I mean, 74th Street is like my home away from home and I'm happy there. And I'm and I'm grateful that the Lord has given me that place. And so I don't care what time it is. I don't care where I'm supposed to be. I don't, I don't really don't care about anything. I just feel like the Lord is good and I'm good. And it's just good. You know, but the light helps a lot. One little light goes a long way in the darkness. You know, the devil's made you convinced that your little light's not worth nothing. Just find a dark place and light one match. doesn't have to be a big match. Just light a match. Find a really dark place in your house and light a match again and remind yourself the value of one light. For the road. Eric likes this. I like this concept when you go home today. You know, was there something about the message that the Lord reminded you, you know, to talk about something that made you mad, then just ask yourself, where's your heart in all this? Where's your heart? If your heart's sad, if your heart's glad, if your heart's mad, then check your heart. Secondly, was the message a trick or a treat? You kind of feel like the Lord played a trick on you with the mad, or is it a treat to hear something? Do you know someone who's struggling in a broken relationship, a, a marriage, divorce, something like that. Is there something you can share with somebody again to just remind them that they need to fight for something rather than fight against something? Maybe there's just something about what, what the Word of God has to say about that today. And then ultimately, did the Lord show or share something with you about a relationship in your life that's maybe struggling or broken or something that you're harboring that's maybe affecting your ability to go to the altar? I mean, if he is, then, you know, be thankful you don't have to walk 68 miles. Be thankful you can get on a phone today and just call someone and say, you know what, I don't know, something happened today at church, and I just want you to know something. I don't, I'm not making excuses for anyone else but myself. And so for my responsibility and whatever the relationship is, broken as it is, I just want to say that I'm sorry. If that helps you, great. If that doesn't help you, I'm sorry. But I know that I obviously played a role in, in this marriage that we're in and that it's broken and I'm not, I'm not here to put any blame on anyone other than to say that I know I played a role in it. You know, this, this marriage is two people, and it's not working good. And so I just want to say I'm sorry for my part in it. Just try being humble. Just forget all the fact that they did, and you did, and he did, and she did, and we did. And just go with the old standard. You know, what's your part in it? You played a role in it. Just go with that and be humble for that and leave that with them. And then let them go take that to the Lord and get back to you. And see if you can't be reconciled to them like the Lord reconciles us every time. He never, he never bashes us on the head with what we've done. Why do we need to bash other people with what they've done? I have always found that interesting. Go to the Lord, and he bashes you on the head a couple of times, and then when you're like, you know, rock'em, sock'em robot, he's like, okay, you're good. No, he doesn't do that to you. He's like, you leave it at the feet of the Lord, and, and it's done. Right? You know, he's, he's hanging on the cross, and he says, forgive them. He doesn't say, you know, remember that guy in particular that's, you know, and, and that guy there, you know, double bonus in hell for that. I mean, nothing. There's no vindictive nothing. It's just like, bless them. Love them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. If you're here today and you want to come up and pray, I'm going to ask the band to come up. And we'll close out tonight, close out today with uh, some time of worship. And um, we got some elders here that if you guys like to pray, I know that's kind of old school, but we're kind of old school, so it's kind of cool. And Eric will be in the back. Um, Rich is, and his wife are here. You guys, Rich can go back there. John and, and Liz, you guys want to come up? Randy, you want to go back there up here too, wherever you guys can go? 
you want to come up while we're singing this last song, if you want to come up and just pray, if the Lord has something on your heart, we'd love to pray with you. Uh, if your marriage is struggling, like I said, if there's just something going on and it's just kind of bothering you and you just want a chance to pray with someone today, we'd love to just hang out with you for a moment and just uh, and be a resource for you. Father, I just thank you for the day. I thank you that we're not mad. I thank you that we're glad, that we're so appreciative that you came 2,000 years ago and sat down on the side of a hill, an actual hill, and shared with a bunch of people your heart from the very beginning. You knew from the very beginning what you needed to say. It's not news to you. You you came with the commission from your father, and you and you were excited to come share it with the people. And I'm sure it was revolutionary for them to hear this stuff. I mean, two or three days' worth of speaking from you, I mean... I'm sure there was times of happiness, times of sadness, times of tired. I mean, they, they probably experienced every kind of emotion and feeling there was under the sun. And, and maybe today we're experiencing a lot of different emotions as well. And I just pray that we can make peace with that, Father, especially if it's something about a relationship that we're having. Specifically, Father, I want to pray right now. If there's anyone in here struggling with their marriages, I mean, it's, it's just something for us to remind ourselves of, that marriages are sacred to you. And I just pray, Father, for all of our marriages in this building today that you would just (laughs) cover them. (laughs) Make them like Mervs and Jeans, Father, where they're just sacred. We can watch them grow old together and be reminded what a blessing it is to watch people grow old in love so that for our young marrieds, for our young couples that are just even considering being married, they can have couples to look up to. I pray that this church can be a place where broken people can come with relationships that are not healthy, be single, be struggling, where spouses don't want to come to church, but spouses know what they need to do. I pray for those that are in the middle of those situations, Father, that you would strengthen the resolve of those that are in unevenly yoked relationships, Father. Will you love on them with a love that can only come from you? Father, I just pray for the church that you love on us, that we would continue to be a source of light, in a world that's truly dark, that we continue to shine your hope. We're so grateful for this information. It's life-changing. Help us to reconcile with our enemies and make them friends. Like you call us your friend. We do it all in your son's precious and holy name.